Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. As mentioned, there's been a lot of talk in this country about housing affordability and how to address it or why we have the situation we have right now. What are the problems that exist when it comes to housing in Canada? What are the pressures that are being put on prices on those looking to enter the housing market? There's some big questions here and obviously you need to identify the problem, I guess, before you can find the right solutions. Uh, There's a new report out this week uh, called Wealth and the Problem of Housing Inequity across generations. And so this is looking at uh, some of the problems around housing affordability and how to address it. Now, there are four main recommendations in this report. One of them has certainly made some headlines this week. The idea of a surtax, an annual surtax on homes valued at over $1 million. But joining us to talk a bit more about some of the problems identified by this report and some of these proposed solutions, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at uh, UBC, Population and Public Health, also uh, one of the founders of Generation Squeeze and the author of this report. Uh, Professor Kershaw, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So when we talk about housing inequity as opposed to housing affordability, are we talking about two different things here, first of all? Oh, that's a really great question. I'll answer it uh, sort of in this way. One of the reasons we don't uh, really tackle housing unaffordability in the country as aggressively as we might is because Canadians are often ambiguous and ambivalent about what we want from housing. Are we wanting housing prices to stall or fall so they're more affordable? Or are we wanting housing to be a good investment, in which case we want home prices to rise? And many, many Canadians are accumulating a lot of wealth as home prices rise. And so we're conflicted about what we want. And that conflict is causing it to be more challenging for us politically to solve the problem of unaffordability. Well, I mean, I'm I'm one of the many Canadians who own a home. Obviously, I have some vested interest in in housing prices uh, going in a certain direction. But I I certainly realize, I mean, you know, my my kids are going to want to own homes at some point, and it's going to be a lot harder for them than than it was for me and my wife. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, we've got very different opinions, different vested interests in this country, don't we? Yeah, and that's just the the issue. And so full disclosure, I'm a homeowner. I'm a homeowner in Metro Vancouver. We have annual uh, evaluations that our BC assessment gives. And just a few days ago, I was told that while I was sleeping last year, my home value went up by half a million dollars. I'm half a million dollars wealthier while I slept, even though when I work my tail off as a professor at 50-hour weeks, I don't make a fraction of that in my yearly salary. And so this is the issue that we're addressing with the recommendation that has garnered a lot of attention this week. When you go to work today, 100% of your earnings are going to be taxed. If you take some of those earnings and you invest them in the stock market, 50% of your returns on investment would be subject to tax. But in terms of the wealth one might accumulate in their home that they live in, barely any of that is subject to tax. 
And the moment we actually shelter something from taxation is the moment that we incentivize Canadians to think about that asset as a good investment strategy. But when something's a good investment strategy, we want it to grow faster than the rest of the economy, which thereby definition results in crushing affordability for those who follow in our footsteps. So we've said that just like offshore tax shelters motivate moving money out of Canada to preserve assets, we need to recognize that the home ownership tax shelter motivates us to bank on rising home prices to gain wealth, and that reinforces feedback loops that powers home prices to surge and leave earnings behind. But we do treat investment housing differently than we treat you know, your primary residence, don't we? We absolutely do. So if you own a second home, then any gain that you made on that second home, 50% of it, just like an investment in the stock market, would be subject to taxation. But the principal residence, we exempted when we first created capital gain policy back in the day. And we said, no, we wanted to kind of help people accumulate wealth. But the wealth accumulation that was happening when we first did that is not at the mark that we've been measuring over the last couple of decades. And so... I, you know, we didn't imagine people like me accumulating half a million dollars of wealth in a single year while I slept. And it's a problem now um, to incentivize people to think like, that's great. It's awesome for me individually. But if we have everyone thinking that's awesome individually, we give rise to a system that crushes the way in which hard work can pay off for our kids and grandchildren because they can be just as smart as us and just as hardworking as us, but they'll have to work so much more simply to try and pay for rent, let alone imagine the prospect of getting into housing ownership. What are you proposing, though? The, the surtax on, on homes that are valued at over $1 million. So that's, I mean, it essentially seems like we're taxing wealth on paper. You haven't sold that home. You haven't realized uh, that that wealth it is it is essentially wealth on paper, but we're, we're going to tax that. That's that's not yeah, so it, it, normally it, it, how we it, do it in this country, is it? Uh, you know, that's a reasonable observation. I mean, we do have property taxation uh, yeah. in modest ways already. So that we're not proposing anything new or exciting or risky or scary. We're just actually talking about adding progressivity to property taxation. We said we want to target the 10% of households living in the most valuable principal residences and saying, given what's happening to skyrocketing home prices, that's a group that we could target in two ways. One, to have them recognize you might have you know, bought your home some time ago as like a bus driver or a nurse, like, you know, regular middle earnings kind of person, and you know, not recognize that over time your asset growing in the way it is puts you in the top 10%. Uh, and so that, you know, we have to start measuring affluence, not simply based on our earnings, but also based on the value of our assets, housing being the most common. But more importantly than that, if we don't put a price on housing inequity, then we don't add price signals to try and dampen down these skyrocketing home prices. And so we just tolerate them rising. And right now, I think those of us in the top 10% need to be showing allegiance to the Canadian dream that a good home should be in reach for what hard work can earn. But we undermine that dream when we're more oriented politically and culturally to protecting tax shelters rather than access to real shelters. Okay, so part of the the approach here would be to, on on the one hand, uh, try to to stall or or flatten these these price increases. I guess the other uh, point would be to generate revenue that could be used elsewhere. So what, what do you see as the impact of this? What do you think it would accomplish? 
We know that when you put a price on something that you can slow down the consumption of that thing. Um, it's a kind of typical tax policy that goes back some time. And, you know, it actually is part of the reason why we put a price on pollution to try and curb our emissions and tackle climate change. And so in the same reasons we're trying to put a modest price on housing inequity. We know that this is amazingly politically controversial. So we're trying to exempt 90 percent so that they won't pay a penny more, given where average prices are in the province of Alberta and even in the city of Calgary. The vast, vast, vast majority of people that listen to your show are going to be exempted. So hopefully they can think, oh, OK, this, you know, what we're trying to do is not have the contagion that's in Metro Vancouver and the GTA keep spreading to so many other places where people are building up capital and then going to less expensive places and bringing their capital and bidding up your prices at home. So that's one yeah. piece of it. Um, but it is also to acknowledge that there are substantial wealth windfalls being generated. And we're at a moment, like in the pandemic, we're running massive deficits. And we need to build housing. We need to do a range of things. And if we can't put on the table the wealth that people are accumulating uh, via something that's been causing so many other hardships, then we're missing something important. And you ask, is it real wealth? I encourage anyone today to go look at like the CTV 24-hour news or the CBC 24-hour news or the global 24-hour news, and you'll see tons of commercials about home equity loans. We have entire industries that make it so easy. I've done this too with record low interest rates, boring against the value of your home to do any of a range of things, invest in the stock market, make improvements to your home, take a trip. It's real wealth. And we need to acknowledge as much because it's harming the hard work paying off for younger Canadians. It used to take five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home in this country. It now takes 14 years. As of 2020, that's not even banking in the changes over this past year, which I won't get for a few more days. It takes over a decade more. And that's just the Canadian average, let alone some of our bigger cities. Well, let's take $2 million homes, whether they're Vancouver or wherever else, in a hypothetical yeah, city. There are two homes that's next me. door to each other. Each are valued at $1 million. Uh, couple A, who lives in one of the homes, bought it 20 years ago when it was, you know, say $250,000, and they're paying a mortgage based on that. The, the couple B in the second home bought it just last year, and they're paying a far higher mortgage. Their financial pressures are a lot steeper than, than couple A, but this kind of a surtax uh, would treat them the same, wouldn't it? It's a brilliant question. And you're now, the, the couple B is the gen squeeze demographic. It's the kind of the more fortunate younger person um, who that we're talking about. This is the audience that my organization's been talking to for some time. So I say two things to those people. On the one hand, one, I'm wanting to recognize it's still not that usual for anyone to be getting into million-dollar homes. So amongst the younger demographic, I am asking those folks to recognize their relative privilege. But more importantly, I'm saying you're not our real target. It's couple A that bought some time ago at a modest price and now have these large windfalls. That's what we need to go after. But there's no way to design the mechanism to, in a way that cannot necessarily capture couple B. And so that's, there's a little bit of collateral damage there. I'm willing to acknowledge that. And I want to work with couple B to think about how we can design some of these details to help shelter them. One of the ways that we're proposing is that if you're just in the housing market for the first few years after you bought a home, you wouldn't have to incur the tax. Um, but I know that couple B is in a different situation, and they're still relatively privileged. But boy, I can understand why they're a bit vexed. But I have to ask them, help us capture the broader problem, and we need you to lean in to help us doing so. Okay, so it would certainly have an impact on prices. It would generate revenue. Maybe that's part of the, the idea here. How would that revenue, how could it be put to use when it comes to dealing with housing affordability? 
Great, yeah. So, I mean, the most obvious solution, we're anticipating that the modest price, you know, less than 1% on home value, over a million dollars, 90% of people are exempt. Uh, but it would raise about $5 billion a year, and that would go directly into building deeply affordable purpose-built rental and cooperative housing, which is increasingly important for the younger folks and the newcomers of any age who are starting in our markets for whom home ownership is so much more challenging to get into. And we need to build up the supply of housing that is catering to different kinds of tenure, like purpose-built rental co-ops. Right, well, people who read more, the website is GenSqueeze, G-E-N, GenSqueeze.ca. Professor Kershaw, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Have a great day. You as well. Uh, that is Paul Kershaw, uh, public policy professor, UBC founder, Generation Squeeze, and the author of this report. Conversation around policing in Alberta, the conversation we've been having, certainly, you know, for the last couple of years, as the Alberta government has pressed ahead with various issues under the Fair Deal umbrella, part of that has involved the idea of a provincial police force to replace community policing in Alberta, currently done by the RCMP. Obviously, other provinces have their own provincial police forces, Quebec and Ontario uh, in particular. But other provinces do have a similar situation as Alberta, similar arrangement where we contract with the federal government to have the RCMP do that provincial policing. The Alberta government has officially has not officially announced that we're going to be making this change, but certainly their comments publicly seem supportive of the idea of a provincial police force. I think there's some some merits to the idea. There's some cost consideration that go into that as well. I think it's also important to talk to local communities, what they feel they need or are currently receiving under the status quo. Now, the National Police Federation represents RCMP members, and they're pleading with Albertans to stick with the status quo. They've been holding a series of town hall meetings across Alberta, making the case for the continuation of the RCMP doing that community policing in Alberta. Joining us on the line here this afternoon to talk a bit more about this conversation, their perspective on it. Kevin Hallwood joins us, Regional Director with the National Police Federation. Kevin, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. You know, one of the, the questions to me in all of this is why we have a national police force in this country that also does local policing and maybe there's a broader conversation that should happen about what we want the rcmp to be but why is it that way right now well the rcmp has been the uh, provincial police service um in in the province since the you know, 30s uh once we when uh, the province moved away from the provincial police force that they had then um and there the as a result um many municipalities have uh have uh, contracted the RCMP to do their municipal policing. Um, you know, some obviously in the Edmonton and Calgary areas, Lethbridge, Madison, how they decided to do their their own uh, municipal police. Uh, that's fine. Um, but the but many for many communities, um, large and small, it's just not it's not cost effective and it's not feasible to uh, have their own. Um, and uh, for those communities, they're they're very uh, very happy uh, with the service they're. Uh, being provided by the RCMP, I do want to I do want to correct you though on something on your intro though. Um, we are not advocating at all for the status quo. We are very supportive of improvements and enhancements being made uh, to uh, the service that the is being provided by the RCMP, um, and we think police interviews are a good thing. Um, it's always it's always a good thing to uh, take a look at a product that you're receiving every once in a while to uh, to see if there can be a better bang for the buck out there. Um, but unfortunately, um, the 
the information uh, and the polling and the numbers at this point um, don't suggest that there is a better bang for the buck to be obtained. Well, but back to my question, though. I mean, it essentially seems like we have uh, in the RCMP what would be Canada's equivalent to, say, the FBI. It, it would be ludicrous, I think, to most Americans to have the FBI doing local community policing. But yet we have we ask the RCMP to do both. Why do we? Well, that's you know that's that would be a question for each municipality because that's the, that's their choices that they've made best based on what um, they've decided is best for their municipality. Um, they are free to contract their own or obtain their own municipal police force. They've made that decision, um, and they get excellent bang for the buck for it. Our members, uh, in the RCMP, um, provide a lot of uh, added resources uh, and a lot of added experience that may not get um, from a municipal police force where that's the only experience that police officer has. Our police officers move around uh, from time to time into different uh, units and sections in different parts of the province and the country for that matter. And they gain those experiences and those investigational skills um, that they can then bring back to those each of those uh, small towns and, and you know large, medium, small towns that they police. And there's great value in there. Our, our members, uh, our RCMP members across the country, are uh, among the best trained and um, the uh, most effective police officers in the country. That's not to take away anything from you know the Empton and Calgary uh, and Lethbridge and the other municipal police forces. They are also very very well trained, uh, but uh, so are our, and so are our members. And for a lot of municipalities, that's that's there's a lot of value there. Well, we have some, you know, apples to apples comparisons. Alberta, we have communities that have their own police service and comparable comparable communities that do not. Are you arguing that those communities who have their own local police services are not as well served as comparable communities that contract the RCMP? Um, Sorry, repeat question. Communities that have their own local police service. I mean, take Lacombe, for example. Lacombe's a town of about fourteen or 15,000. Uh, there are comparable communities, even near Lacombe, uh, that use the RCMP. Are, are those communities that use the RCMP more well-served than those that have their own police service? Well, according to the surveys that, are conducted, that we've conducted uh, across the province, um, they believe they are. As in the citizens believe they are? That, that's according to the polling. That, uh, is, they, there a, is there they, a way to objectively yeah. measure that? How, how would we measure objectively uh, how well served a community is by a particular police force? Are there, are there certain criteria we can use? Well, I guess that would be a question the municipality would have to ask their citizens. Um, but uh, like I said, uh, we've conducted uh, now three rounds of polling uh, conducted by uh, Blair Strategic Insights. And the 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 member, the people of Alberta that have been served by the RCMP uh, appear to be very happy, uh, 80% approval rating. So I would suspect, or I would suggest that those numbers speak for themselves. Well, if you say people are happy uh, with the status quo, but you also suggest that you're not defending the status quo, th- uh-huh. that seems at odds. What what needs to change then if, if people are, as you say, so happy? Well, they... Just because just because they're happy doesn't mean you can't be happier. Um, so can there be an improvement made? Sure, probably, absolutely. Um, you know, rules response times um, in some cases have been uh, made a issue. Um, and you know, it's you know when you when you're wanting uh, when you need a police officer and it's emergency seconds counts, but it seems like they're minutes away. Um, you know, to use that adage. Um, 
so the question then becomes, uh, do we need more resourcing? Yeah, probably. Um, in some cases, uh, drastically more than others. Um, and that's one of those things that can be uh, um, added or improved on to address some of those specific concerns. What about the idea of local control? There's there's that perspective out there that for communities that have their own police force, or even the idea of Alberta having its own police force, there is more local control. What, what do you say to that? Oh, that's that. You know, that's an excellent question, Kevin. I'm really glad you brought that up. So there is this misnomer out there that there is a uh, large amount of control that comes from Ottawa, and the fact of the matter is, is that's just not accurate. Provincial policing priorities, uh, so the larger priorities across the across the province, are set out uh, through the uh, through the contract um, set down by the provincial government to the commanding officer of the RCMP for the province. So those pr- provincial policing priorities come directly from Minister Matthews' office to the commanding officer of K-Division, and then the commanding officer of K-Division is tasked with uh, setting a plan to address those. Similarly, on a more local level, each municipality, each and every year, has an opportunity to sit down with their detachment commander and say, you know, sir or ma'am, these are the six or seven things or whatever, however many there is, these are the priorities and the issues that we are seeing in our community that we want uh, our police, uh, our police detachment, uh, our CMP to focus on, and then that commander is tasked with addressing those issues, developing a plan to address those. So the the priorities come directly from either the municipalities or the province itself, depending on if we're talking a local or a provincial wide uh, um, uh, issue. What about how the RCMP works with local police forces? One of the issues that came out of the, the horrible uh, you know, tragedy in Nova Scotia, the, the mass shooting there in April 2020, was that uh, there was a real lack of communication between the RCMP and other local police forces that were impacted by the whole situation. Is, is, to what extent is that a problem in Alberta? Well, there's... Uh there, well, that will be a problem or an issue, I should say, um, almost anywhere in the country where um, different police um, uh, services are operating on different radios, for example. Now, with the new AFRAX radio um, uh, system, there is a ability to lessen those controls or lessen those issues, um, and that's a step. And that's, that's one of the things that Alberta has ahead of uh, you know the, the issues that happened out, out east. And those sort of things. Um, there's, I mean, again, there's always improvements that can be made. You know, a, a, a central uh, point where uh, you know call taking and a dispatcher may assist. There's, there's all sorts of things to look at. But um, our, in general, typically speaking, our members work very well with um, with our municipal partners. And in fact, uh, we have many uh, joint operations with many of those municipal partners. Now, one of the questions that's come up, that if, if Alberta did transition to a provincial police force, what would become of, of those RCMP officers currently working in policing in Alberta? I think some assume maybe that they would just put on another uniform and and stay where they are. But what, what's your sense of what the impact would be? What would it mean for those who currently work in uh, rural policing in Alberta for the RCMP? Well, I, 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 you know, I suspect, uh, in fairness, I suspect that some, uh, some will would transition over, but those numbers would be very small. Uh, take City of Surrey, for example, uh, they're uh, going through a transition right now as well. Um, the when they did their study, they expected a large number 
of members to transition and patch over to the Surrey Police Service. That just hasn't happened. A uh, very small percentage has moved over. Even if, uh, you know, from the PwC report, I believe they, the number that they suggested would be about 15% of uh, members would transfer over to the provincial police force, that still leaves about 2,500 members short. In a day and age where all police services across country are having difficulty recruiting, I find it challenging um, to expect that those 2,500 members plus um, would are easily found. City of Victoria, for example, right now, they're currently trying to track down uh, and uh, find another 20 experienced uh, police officers to join their ranks. Um, and they're to the point now where they are they're offering a twenty thousand dollar signing bonus for experienced police officers to come over and they're still having difficulty finding attracting the attracting the candidates so to to think that uh, somebody can just snap their fingers or may, wave a magic wand and and staff up a provincial police service in short order is it's uh, it's nonsensical Okay, so we mentioned the uh, the tour, the community engagement tour, you're calling it, that's already underway and some more dates coming up next week. What, what are you hoping this accomplishes? Well, the, the uh, goal of the, the tour is to provide uh, clear and fact-based information to, uh, to uh, the people of Alberta because, quite frankly, um, they need to be aware of the uh, safety implications and the cost implications because we are talking millions and millions of dollars. Um, and... For, and on top of that, uh, we want to hear from Albertans uh, as far as what they think the issues may are um, and, and their feelings on the topic. And I can tell you from the ones that we've done so far and the um, conversations that we've had over the past 12 years, um, or sorry, past 12 months, um, we have, there's very, very few people uh, that are, think this is a good idea. Um, we've met with uh, numerous uh, elected uh, officials, uh, mayors and councils, reeves, that sort of thing. Not a single one of those people are in support of moving to a provincial police service. All right, more details at uh, keepalbertarcmp.ca. Kevin, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. You're, you're welcome, Kevin. Stay firm. All right. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Kevin Hallwa uh, with the National Police Federation, uh, Keep Alberta RCMP.ca is their website. So they're holding some town halls next week. you got Westlock, Athabasca, Fort McMurray, uh, the week after, uh, some dates in the south, Okotoks, Claire's Home, Pincher Creek, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Brooks, and Strathmore. Certainly one of the things this pandemic has taught us is, or reminded us, maybe is the way to put it, that, that our, our healthcare system is vulnerable to even a slight amount of pressure. I mean, even at the best of times, uh, you know, our healthcare system doesn't function well. Surgical wait times is an obvious example. But as we've seen during this pandemic, it doesn't take a lot to push the system to the brink. And we're seeing that once again, you know, as hospitalizations increase in Quebec and Ontario, those jurisdictions have imposed all sorts of restrictions uh, to try to get a handle on the situation. But it's interesting that, you know, in the province of Ontario, Canada's most populous province, you know, to have 300 people in, in the ICU is, is to put a considerable strain on the system. I mean, here in Alberta, we were pushing that number back during our fourth wave. And, uh, you know, we we're on the brink of triage protocol and perhaps uh, on the verge of some, some serious lockdown measures, which fortunately never happened. But why is our system so vulnerable? And what are going to be the lessons coming out of this regarding our healthcare system? I don't know if the answer is necessarily to throw more money at it. But there should be a conversation, I would think, about how our system functions. 
There's an interesting piece uh, up at thehub.ca. It says, in 2022, can we finally be honest about our health system's failures? Maybe part of our reluctance to have the conversation is that a lot of Canadians have convinced ourselves that we've got, you know, the best healthcare system in the world, which I don't think is objectively the case. Joining us on the line is the author of that piece. Sean Spear is the editor-at-large at The Hub, thehub.ca, also a senior fellow with the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Sean, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me, Rob. <laughs> Why do you think Canadians are so reluctant to acknowledge the the weaknesses or or the shortcomings in our healthcare system? It's a great question. I think a big part of it is we think of healthcare differently than we think of other parts of the economy or society, and for for good reason. You know, oftentimes matters of of life and and, and death, and so we place the question of fairness um, really at the heart of how we think about about healthcare, and so the idea that the system may be imperfect, it may be slow, um, people might have to wait for uh, test- testing or, or surgeries, um, may prolong suffering, may even cause death, but it's fundamentally fair. And, um, you know, it seems to me one of the, the challenges of the pandemic experience is that um, we've had we've had these pandemic-induced backlogs um, that are a result of uh, the system orienting itself to uh, addressing the rising cases of COVID-19. And coming out of this experience, Rob, um, you know, we're going to have no choice but to think differently about healthcare because these backlogs are going to be with us long after the pandemic is over. It seems like a paradox in a way, because we spend a lot of money on healthcare system. We spend more per capita than a lot of other countries, yet we don't seem to see the results that should go along with that level of spending. What, what does that tell us about the way we approach healthcare? Well, it's, it's a great question. You know, one way to think about it is the basic kind of policy framework around healthcare was established in the mid-60s. Um, you know, the advent of, of Medicare, which is often held up as a moment of of real national pride. The problem, of course, is in the intervening decades, um, the nature of medicine has changed a great deal. You know, back at the at the origins of Medicare, one of the most expensive, biggest expenses um, for healthcare was clean linens. Um, you know, now today we have MNRA vaccines and all of these new medical technologies. So, you know, I think we can honor the principle of equity and fairness, um, but sort of modernize the way we. Uh, deliver healthcare to both address, um, you know, uh, aging demographics and the pressures that those will put on the system, but just fundamentally, um, this question of the of these pandemic-induced backlogs that I I mentioned in the paper. Um, you know, one thing I was I've been thinking about, Rob. I know you think about policy and politics a great deal. Um, you know, if, if you ask yourself, what are going to be the big takeaways from this experience? You know, the rise of remote yeah. work, maybe different relationship with China. You know, all of these different questions, it seems to me the one major development of COVID will be how do we deal with uh, our healthcare system? Because it's really been overwhelmed over the past uh, 20 months and counting. Well, it is, right? And as you say, there's the short-term pressures in terms of, you know, ERs and, and ICUs and all of that. Uh, there's a longer-term pressure of these these surgical backlogs. And we had surgical wait times even before the pandemic. Those have been exacerbated yeah. uh, severely throughout this pandemic. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of talk of, of how we address that other than to spend more money, throw more money at the problem. I and mean, as you point out in your piece, we just went through a federal election 
where it didn't seem like any of this was really being discussed. Yeah, that's right, Rob. And I wonder if this is a case where um, the politicians may be behind the public. I suspect a lot of your listeners know people or heard of people through this pandemic who weren't able to get um, prompt um, testing or treatment um, and as a result had a, a kind of lingering issue, maybe even one that was ultimately fatal. Um, and so I, I do think that there may be a kind of window of opportunity um, in which the public is ready for that kind of conversation that in the past has been perceived as a sort of third rail. Um, you know, I, I, just, to, you know, you hate to use anecdotes, but I, I, I know of people who, um, you know, because the systems were just so focused on responding to the COVID crisis, um, went weeks, months without cancer diagnosis that it um, puts them up against the wall um, in terms of, of treatment. So I, I, I do wonder if the Canadian public is ready um, for a, a, a conversation about reform. And, and I'll just wrap up by making this point. Um, what's interesting is, well, it's not occurring, you know, in the wide open with a lot of debate and discussion. What's fascinating is several provinces, including the NDP in British Columbia, the UCP in Alberta, the CAQ in Quebec, are drawing on private delivery um, to deal with this um, pandemic-induced backlog. So. Um, we aren't having the big picture conversation yet, but in practice, we're starting to see a, a growing role for private delivery precisely because um, people from across the spectrum um, are looking at the arithmetic and realizing that, that um, something's got to give. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to watch what happens in Alberta because, you know, the, the UCP government has talked about this kind of reform and trying to expand uh, options for, for surgery still within, you know, universal health care. No one's jumping the queue. No one's having to pay out of pocket. But finding private options to help clear that surgical backlog. I don't think people really care if it's a private surgical clinic, if it's a publicly owned surgical clinic, as long as they're getting that surgery in a timely manner, I think ultimately that's what matters most. But, you know, the other thing we're seeing in Alberta is some big pushback from the opposition that this is about privatizing healthcare or U.S. style healthcare. So I'll be curious to see, you know, how the public responds to that and, and whether the government is inclined to back off from any of this. It could be an interesting test case. Yeah, and I would just say that um, that debate that you described is occurring against the backdrop in which um, a, a case is making its way to the Supreme Court um, concerning um, private health care. Listeners may be familiar with the so-called Camby case um, that comes out oh, of yeah. British Columbia uh, and Brian Day, Dr. Brian Day's clinic there. So, um, you know, we've had a, a decision in 2005 in Quebec um, that said that long wait times uh, amounted to um, an infringement of people's um, life, liberty, and security of the person. And, you know, that's kind of at the core of this um, case making its way to the Supreme Court. So I think we're entering a kind of period of potential um, reform and disruption. And, and, you know, that's going to be hot, hotly contested. Um, but as I say, I think that the Canadian public may be more open to reform than they have um, in a long time, given the extraordinary experience we've all been through. We'll let people know your piece. It's up at uh, The Hub, thehub.ca. Sean, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks, Rob. You take care. You as well. Much appreciated. Uh, Sean Spear is editor-at-large at thehub.ca. He's also uh, at the uh, University of Toronto, uh, Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He's a uh, senior fellow there. So uh, his piece about us finally having an honest conversation about some of the failings in our healthcare system. Says Canada holds the dubious distinction of having one of the most expensive, poorest performing 
healthcare systems in the OECD. Now, how do we fix that? I, I think the idea of looking at other options when it comes to surgeries makes sense. How do we fix the situation with our ERs and our ICU and hospitals? You know, could we somehow double our ICU capacity in Alberta? You know, ICU uh, capacity isn't just about beds, right? It's also about staff. It's about doctors. It's about nurses. So I think addressing that would be pretty costly. To what extent does immunity exist right now in the population as we battle this Omicron wave? Omicron has changed the equation a little bit in terms of its immune escape properties and, of course, its uh, transmissibility as well, and, and the two do overlap. Uh, so, for example, uh, two doses are, are certainly less effective against this variant than, than previous variants, although those still seem to hold up well in terms of preventing severe disease. Uh, booster doses uh, seem to help. And I suppose maybe what we're being left with here is, is Omicron kind of rips through the population is at least in its wake, there's some greater immunity. Those who are immune naive will have some immunity as a result of infection. Uh, those who have had two doses of vaccine will have now this, this hybrid immunity, you know, the combination of uh, immunity from vaccination and immunity from infection. And obviously those who are getting booster doses are gonna have their immunity enhanced as well. So there is all of that. What does it tell us, though, about what kind of immunity we have, what kind of immunity we need uh, to get out of this wave? Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, where things stand, where things are going on the immunity side of things. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Tim Evans, who is an Audital Director, Associate Dean of the School of Population and Global Health at McGill, and is Executive Director of Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. Dr. Evans, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Ron. I guess as we attempt to measure and quantify, you know, the, the level of immunity that exists in Canada right now, is, is that uh, a lot more difficult to do at the moment? Uh, well, uh, I think it is if you're looking at uh, what's generating the immunity. Um, right. Because as, as I think I just heard you over say, as, as Omicron works through the population, uh, in, uh, you know, pre-Omicron we had... Uh, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population that had infection-acquired immunity. Um, and uh, we don't have the data yet, but the overwhelming likelihood with as many people getting infected uh, with Omicron is that uh, we'll, we'll move uh, the number of Canadians with infection-acquired immunity uh, up uh, very, very, very dramatically. Uh, and then, of course, as you said, we already have high vaccination rates, and uh, those are going to be accompanied by uh, further immune protection with boosters. So uh, in all the permutations and combinations related to immunity from infection and vaccination, uh, we're going to move in a direction which uh, is going to strengthen uh, overall immune protection um, uh, as we move through this, um, uh, this, this current Omicron wave. And how optimistic should we be when it comes to, the, you know, the durability and the impact of, of all of this accumulating immunity? I, I know there's some hope maybe that maybe we're in the last wave of, of this pandemic. I mean, obviously, that's hard to predict, but it, it is a lot of immunity that, that it's leaving in its wake, maybe almost a silver lining of sorts. 
Well, I think, uh, I think yes uh, is the short answer to your question. Um, I think we're reaching a point where we're going to have very few people that are going to be uh, at risk to severe consequences of infection, uh, either, you know, uh, ICU uh, care or, 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 or worse. Uh, so I think um, that that's uh, that's an important achievement, and uh, I think we will continue to deal uh, with uh, you know subsequent variants, uh, which may cause uh, you know concern in discrete areas for you know for periods of time. But uh, I think we will be le- um, moving into a situation where it will be. Uh, much more difficult for subsequent variants to really um, move through the population like um, Omicron has. Right. Well, even before Omicron, I mean, we were talking about booster doses because of the concern of waning immunity. Obviously, Canada was a little bit behind other countries in in rolling out vaccines. We we had longer intervals between doses that might have helped. But where were we at, do you think, in November and December when it came to uh, waning immunity? To what extent did it leave us vulnerable, perhaps? Well, I think we'd already seen, uh, for example, in in our uh, older uh, population, people over age 70, um, we uh, who were also vaccinated first, but we saw very clear evidence um, in the studies we've been supporting in the task force uh, uh, that uh, their uh, uh, humoral antibodies uh, were uh, decreasing um, uh, after vaccination. Um, in such a way where we felt that there may be some vulnerability. Uh, so that antibody wane we saw first uh, in the uh, elderly population, and uh, that led to a recommendation for by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization in September to uh, provide a boost to people over 70. Uh, so that, um, I think, was uh, a wise decision. And um, in some respects, uh, there, there, there's been a, a recognition that uh, it wasn't a booster necessarily, but simply a third dose, uh, that you required a third dose to get um, uh, your antibody levels up uh, to ensure protection. However, there's another side to this, which I think is very important, which is although uh, the antibodies we measure in the blood um, uh, were waning, uh, there are uh, two other levels of defense in the immune system related to uh, uh, B cells and T cells. And uh, those uh, are proving to be very robust. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, they're the ones that can pump out antibodies when the, when uh, they're, the body's under attack from a new uh, infection. And if we look at the protection that the vaccines are providing against uh, severe com- uh, consequences of, of COVID-19, uh, the vaccines are, per- are, per- are performing exactly as we expected, which is um, they're providing really good protection from those adverse consequences. So that's reassuring. Um, yeah. that, that We still have that protection at the level of cellular uh, immunity and uh, all of the studies uh, uh, that we're seeing, uh, not only in Canada, but elsewhere, are suggesting that uh, uh, 
uh, uh, both vaccination in particular, but also infection to some degree, uh, have given us uh, good um, uh, cellular immunity. It's interesting because I, I think at some level it seems like Omicron is inherently less virulent than, than, say, Delta. But it's hard to quantify that for sure, because I think a lot of what, what might seem like a, a less virulent variant is, is attributable to all of that, uh, that immunity that exists. I mean, is, is, are we able to sort of separate the two and to really understand Omicron's impact? Yes. And, you know, we now have uh, uh, half a dozen or more studies that are emerging, and including from Canada. Um, uh, we have something out of Ontario preprint recently, uh, which is comparing um, uh, hospitalizations arising from Omicron and Delta uh, in populations that were fully vaccinated. And we're seeing... Um, uh, uh, lower rates of hospitalization and death um, uh, associated with Omicron. Uh, so uh, the consensus based on the science is that uh, Omicron is, uh, is, uh, seems to be uh, a less severe pathogen. Um, and that's, uh, that seems to be consistent now, uh, not only in terms of what we're seeing in the population, but we have some some animal studies that so that suggest that in fact um, uh, the Omicron virus um, uh, seems to affect different parts of the respiratory system in ways that it's less likely to uh, 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 cause uh, pneumonia. Uh, so uh, I think uh, it's fair to say that it's not just a vaccine effect that we're looking at, uh, but that indeed this virus is is less uh, less virulent. Well, given, you know, and you talked about the durability of the, the T-cell and B-cell response, given the, you know, the, the significant impact, it seems, of, you know, the, the antibody response from, from a booster or a third dose, is there a case to be made yet for uh, an Omicron-specific vaccine or vaccine booster? Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that, uh, based on what we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing uh, breakthrough infection, but not... Uh, a lot of disease uh, associated with that uh, because, as I said, it's less virulent, but also because our vaccines are working well. Um, uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, that suggests that we can continue with the same vaccines. We have what the scientists call cross-reactivity, meaning uh, there's no evidence that uh, the Omicron uh, uh, variant of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 is, is uh, able to penetrate those walls of, of immune protection. So um, I would say no. Uh, I don't think we need to have an Omicron-specific vaccine. All right, we'll leave it there, Dr. Evans. Much more to COVID-19immunitytaskforce.ca. Appreciate your perspective on all of this and uh, your insight. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you, and, and stay safe. All the best. Appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Tim Evans, uh, Director of Canada's uh, COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. So his thoughts on, you know, the impact this, this wave will have and, and what it's going to leave in its wake. There's an interesting story in the National Post today and, and some similar thoughts coming out of Denmark. Uh, the technical director with Denmark's Staten Serum Institute said Omicron may be what is going to lift us out of the pandemic. So this becomes the last wave. 
says within two months, I hope the infection will start to subside and we get our normal lives back. So it, it's sort of that, that same kind of thing that Dr. Evans talked about, where as it kind of rips through the population, and, and for the most part, which is encouraging, seems to present a more mild illness, uh, that it leaves behind greater levels of immunity. Nevertheless, the net effect of the Omicron wave is that millions are poised to contract a version of COVID-19 that will leave them with immunity at the cost of only a few days of cold-like symptoms. The report says when the Omicron wave is over, we're in a better place than we were before, but also warned that Omicron will still put pressure on our healthcare system. There's already a clear detachment. Infection levels have never been higher in Alberta throughout this whole pandemic, not even close to what they are right now. And yet hospitalizations remain at a fraction still of what we've seen with past peaks in previous waves. Now that number is going to increase. You know, we saw yesterday a jump in the number of hospitalizations overall, but a decrease, uh, I think, by eight uh, of the number of patients in ICU. So we'll see how those trends continue to hold. Obviously, Quebec and Ontario still see uh, increases in hospitalizations. And, and yes, there, there is that phenomenon we're seeing maybe more so right now where you do have what's referred to as incidental hospitalizations, patients who were admitted for other reasons, who then test positive for COVID-19. ICU numbers will be the ones to watch. And yes, I mean, this is still going to have severe outcomes for some people. Clearly, not being immune naive when you meet up with Omicron is in your best interest. And so if you're vaccinated, for example, you are far less likely uh, to have a severe outcome, far less likely to require hospitalization. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.